Scripture we're reading this morning, Matthew 28, verses 16 and following, subtitled, section titled, The Great Commission. I'm reading from the New International Version. The Word of the Lord. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. He'll bless us as we read and obey it. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Ninety-six-year-old Fred Strobo of Peoria, Illinois, wrote a love song in memory of his bride of 73 years. It went viral. Perhaps you've heard it. If you haven't, I recommend you Google it. Second thought, since so many of you have 4G cell phones, let me rephrase that and say, after this service, go home and Google it. (laughs) When you do, you'll see a 96-year-old wry, spry figure talking about his bride, Lorraine. How did I meet Lorraine, he asked. There's a, at least in the YouTube clip I saw, there's a little bit surrounding uh, uh, kind of background that fills in the professionally done song. How did I meet Lorraine, he asks. She was a car hop at an A&W root beer stand in East Peoria. She brought trays to the car. That was in about 1938. We dated two years, then we married. She was just the prettiest girl I ever saw. I fell in love with her right there. She gave me 75 years of her life. It was a wonderful 75 years. Kind of feels like it was unreal. Like I was dreaming or something. But all I can say is it was real. One month after her death, sitting in his living room alone, he wrote this song, which is professionally recorded. I considered bringing my apple and putting it up to the microphone, letting you hear it. I said, no. So just let your imaginations work until you go home. Here are the lyrics. They're a little bit repetitive. They're beautifully... Part of the repetition is the beauty of them. Sweet Lorraine, I wish we could do the good times all over again. Memories linger on. That's why I wrote you this song. Life goes round once, but never again. Oh, sweet Lorraine, I wish we could do all the good times over again. Now, if you're like me, there's something about those sentiments that melt the heart. It is an appropriate ode of Valentine love during Valentine's week or the end of it. I believe our hearts melt 
like things like that because we are made by and we are made for love. Not only romantic love, but love. We have receptors in our soul for it. And last week and again this week, we saw that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is our fumbling way to assert and to maintain that the ultimate reality of the universe is love. The doctrine of the Trinity, that the one God is in three persons, one character and one nature, is usually everywhere in Scripture, but in the background of Scripture, supporting, sustaining everything. Augustine says that the Old Testament is like a dimly lit room full of furniture. But when the light comes, when the light of the New Testament comes, we see what was there all along. The doctrine of Trinity is like that. It's everywhere. But often it's in the background. In a few texts, it comes right to the front. And this great text of the Great Commission is one of them. Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That word in really is the Greek preposition eis, which E-I-S transliterated, which means into. We are baptized into the name, which means we are baptized into a participation in the very name. Now, what is the name in contemporary usage? It's a label. It's a title. We hold on to something like that, but biblically, a name is a nature. It's the character. It's the thing itself. So when God promises that I will, when he asks us to build him a temple or a tabernacle, he says, my name will be there. And he means by that, my very self, my very presence will be there. When Moses debates and argues with God, he says, come with me, don't leave me, be with me. I want your name to go with me. The psalmist uh, cries out to the Lord and he says, help us, Lord, let your name be near to us. It's the very character. Name and nature go together. So biblically, when one gets a new nature, when one gets a new character, they have a new name. Abram becomes Abraham. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul, name and nature, biblically, go together. So we are baptized into the name, the character, the presence. We participate in the nature of God as disciples. The other interesting thing about this text, which is right before us, is that the name, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are baptized into and participate with is singular, Not the names, Father, Son, and Spirit. The name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, formerly, and I kind of like these days, we use the name more, Jehovah. But in more modern times, we know a little bit more about what the vowels probably sound like. Yahweh, the name. But a new name is given in the New Testament, and here it is. The name of God, which illumines all his names, is Father, Son, and Spirit, though one name. So in Nuce, in a nutshell here, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons in one being. Father, Son, and Spirit. One character, presence, and name. It is all together. Um, 
In class over the seminary, I say there's a grammar of the Trinitarian life, and if you want to be in class for Peck, James Packer says the doctrine of the Trinity is the most difficult doctrine of the Christian faith, so we ought to put on our thinking caps for just a second. The grammar of how we speak of God's triune, his three-in-one life, is straightforward. It's threefold. In the first place, we must affirm simultaneously, not sequentially, concurrently, not consecutively, all at the same time, three things, that God is one. The Lord our God is one. The Old Testament is clear about this. We are a monotheistic religion. We do not have religions for every tribe, for every city, for every state, for every nation. There is one God overall, the one God. And yet we experience and we know this God in three persons who are equal. Three equal persons. Verse 17, which uh, we might have slipped over, has an interesting insight in it. It says there, verse 17 of uh, chapter 28 of Matthew, When the disciples saw him, meaning Jesus, they worshipped him. Worship is only appropriate for an underivative uncreated being in Revelation. Uh, one of the worshipers kneels down before an angel in all of his glory and begins to worship him, and the angel is afraid. He's full of fear. What is there that would make an angel fearful? Apparently is this. Don't worship me. I am a creature too. I am another created being. Worship is reserved for that which is underivative. Verse 17, when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him. God is one. God is three. And these three are equal from all eternity. The doctrine of the Trinity says there is this participation of knowing and serving and loving, which goes between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism in all of our Heinz 57 varieties and more. Disagree on many things. That's why we are different traditions of the faith. Some of those things more or less important. But there is one thing about which we all agree. And that is the triune life of God. Trinitarianism is Christianity. If we get this wrong, we get things wrong which are at the very foundation of the faith. Christianity is Trinitarianism. Which means, to pick up from last week, the great truth that love is the foundation of the universe. If God was unipersonal, if he was Unitarian, then love would have happened. Love might have come into the world. God might have made a decision to create and then to be able to love. But because God is Trinitarian, love never had a beginning. Love is the ultimate foundation of God's life himself. I love the Christian year. I love the celebration of Christmas. I love what I think is its completion in Easter and the celebration of the resurrection which uh, is the announcement of the irrepressible 
indomitable victory of God in Christ over everything. And uh, many years, maybe again this year, I, I say that completes the story. Christmas to Easter, that Easter is the great celebration of the Christian faith. This week, working on this sermon, I'm rethinking the truth of all that. Easter may be the culmination of the gospel story. It may be indeed be good news and great news for us. But perhaps it isn't the most important news of all. Maybe the Christian year ought to center on something like, frankly, Valentine's Day. Or something like it. Maybe the center of everything we do and are should concentrate. The center of the story is the fact that love is the ultimate reality of the universe and everything else is an outgrowth of that and an invitation to it and an implication of it. Maybe even Easter itself needs to take second place to something more primal, more important, more central. And if it does, we are at that holy place this morning, the ultimate character of the triune love of God himself. Um, The triune love of God means balance. Probably we've concentrated too much on the spirit. Our life in Christ would be too totally mystical and not doctrinal enough. Perhaps if we concentrated too much on the Father, we would think we could obey him and we would be Pharisees and legalists. Maybe if we concentrated too much on the Son, we would see him as our example and we would be crushed by it. The doctrine of the Trinity invites us to a balance in our Christian discipleship and life. The doctrine of the love of God in the Trinity also invites us to a love of servanthood. We looked at this a bit last week. The Father and the Son and the Spirit live in a life of eternal glory, giving glory to one another, which means to adore and to please and to serve and to think about it is other-oriented. Christian love means the center of the universe isn't centripetal. It doesn't curve in on itself. It curves outwards. It's other-oriented. It's other-directed from the eternity of life itself. Love means servanthood. It's no accident that this passage where the Trinity comes to the forefront is also right at the center of a missional passage. Go ye, it's plural, in community. It's not optional. To be my disciples, go ye, all of you, forward, sharing this great name, which is this great love, which is this great life. Triune love is other-oriented. The... uh, fourth chapter of uh, 1 John is an amazing chapter on love. I've decided I think I'll dip into it, but this will be my text for next week. John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If love is from God, then love links us to God. Love shows we know God. Love is service, traveling at distance, taking time, making effort. Love is costly. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. Love 
cost God the warm, wet blood of his own son, and it will cost us too. C.S. Lewis says, love is like nails. Love is nails. It isn't automatic. Love is a choice. So Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in her great poem, said, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways, and perhaps we should count the ways too. How do we love others? What has it cost us? Maybe we should have a checklist. Maybe we should work in the nursery. Maybe we should find somebody sitting alone on the pew and invite them to sit with us. Maybe we should invite people over to our home in addition to just our friends. Maybe we should visit the aged. Maybe we should kneel down and talk to children. Love... uh, is costly. Here's a checklist. What have you done? Ask yourself at the end of the day. There was inconvenient or costly or troubling for me that I've done for another. That's the kind of love with which we were loved. And if we are to be disciples of that love, our love needs to take that shape too. Last week I ran out of time at a great verse in the 17th chapter. I'm out of time again, but let me just mention more than I did last week. The 17th chapter of uh, the Gospel of John, verse 20. Do you know that you are in the Bible? That each one of you are mentioned in the Bible, John 17, 20. Listen, I do not pray for these alone, his disciples in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Also for those in the future, those in the disciples who will believe in me through the gospel missionary message that is shared and that goes out from the disciples that are in this room. And I don't think Jesus is just talking about a head knowledge, just kind of a belief. What he is talking about is being invited into the heart of all things. What our text this morning says to be participate in the name, in the presence, in the character. We are invited to participate in the heart of all things, the very love of God himself. It is the center of all that is most beautiful. Last week I called the sermon the dance of love, and perhaps only artistry can speak of it well enough. Jonathan Edwards thought that harmony was the very heart of beauty. He says, Harmony is something that reflects God's own beauty, the best, most beautiful, and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind, a harmony of mind with each other, is by music. When I would form in my mind an idea of a society in the highest degree happy, I think of them as expressing their love, their joy, and the inward concord and harmony and spiritual beauty of their souls by sweetly singing to each other. There is the deepest and most alluring beauty, according to Edwards, that is to be found in the highest harmony of the Trinity. One of my theological mentors of the 20th century, Karl Barth, said the Trinity of God is the secret of his beauty. Sometimes I'm I'm asked why we still go to the trouble of printing music and having words and killing trees and having notes in front of us. And 
After all, there are other churches, many of them have made a decision to project words on the wall. And God is honored that way and God is blessed and lives are changed and his name is praised. And in what I'm going to say, I'm not being critical of other decisions that are made, other churches that have made other decisions and realizing God is praised and blessed through that, of course. But we've made another decision, not because we couldn't do that, not because we don't know how to do that, but because we believe music is too important to make too simple. That there is something about the confidence of knowing what note is ahead of you and what harmonies you are invited to in the page before you that allows us to honor God more deeply and more fully. And as more training wheels to be disciples before him and with him. God is to be worshipped in the beauty of his holiness. And music is one of the important ways, maybe the most important ways we do that. One of the great Puritan divines said he thought the Christian life was, when he thought of the Christian life like Edwards, it was like a bird singing to the world. And he said, you know, the birds sing louder and more brightly when the sun shines. We sing in all the harmonies to which we are invited because the Son of the living God, we believe, has shone on us in Jesus Christ. At uh, the end of the book of Job, towards its very end, is a, a wonderful benediction. I have never used it much. I used it last week, but it it goes to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. If you do an analysis of whose is that great joy, you realize it's to him. The great joy is the joy of the one who presents us without blame and faultless. At the end of the Old Testament, we are told on the day of judgment, on the last day, God will sing over all of his creation, and he will sing a song which will rock the universe. In classes and up here, I don't want to even begin to imply that people who have studied theology know more about the triune God than anyone else. We don't. We don't have better models. Knowing and experiencing the triune God is not harder or easier than loving him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, praising the Father in the presence of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Even though we don't understand that, it's no real problem to stand under it and to live in it and to experience it. And although I don't understand everything about the doctrine of the Trinity, I do know this, that the understanding of the universe, that it has been created by an explosion of joy. And the meaning of life is to go forth in the name of that joy and to invite others into it, to participate in it, is the most profound and important meaning and understanding of the universe that there ever has been or that there ever will be. The meaning of life is to understand that, to live in it, and to share it. May it be so. Living and holy God, we love you because we were first loved by you. We were invited into your life of joy, eternal happiness, and love.
May we be faithful to that. May we go forth in a setness, not a stasis, and share it with others. In your holy, divine, loving name, Father, Son, and Spirit, world without end. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.